Acts chapter 8, we will go all the way to verse 25 of Acts chapter 8. Uh, We won't read the entire passage to start. We'll back up into verse 7 for a little bit, get a little uh, little sort of context from last week, and then we'll read through the 8th verse of chapter 8. The title of the sermon is Living into the Unexpected. We begin to see in the book of Acts that God works in unexpected ways. That's becoming clear to us in the book of Acts, so we'll learn a bit about that now. So we'll start in chapter 7, verse 57. I'm working from the NIV this morning. Again, a little review from last week. It says in Acts 7, 57. You'll remember, excuse me, that Peter was on trial before the Sanhedrin, the governing body of Judaism, and they're going to kill him. Acts 7, 57. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at Stephen, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, which means he died. Chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of their killing him. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. This is God's word. Let's pray. We thank you for your word to us, God. We thank you that we can together receive it, hear it, believe it, respond to it. We thank you for what you uh, intend to teach us today and the way that you want to shape our lives through your word. We ask that we would be attentive and receptive to hearing your word and the preaching of your word. Please, Holy Spirit, that you would work powerfully in us to conform us more to the image of Christ for that we would live for the glory of Christ. We ask together that I would be helpful and faithful this morning. Please, God, fill me with your spirit to communicate your words in a way that's faithful to the Bible and brings glory to Jesus and serves this church well. Please, God, we ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, you might remember that last week we all kind of admitted together some very tacitly, but we admitted together that sometimes life feels like God isn't doing anything that you would like him to do, and he doesn't seem to be anywhere to be found, right? Remember that from last week? Sometimes life feels like God isn't doing anything you'd like him to do, and he doesn't seem anywhere to be found. But you'll remember that the Bible told us last week that that isn't true that what is true is that God is always with us and God is always working in our lives. Amen? God is always with us and God is always working in our lives regardless of how life begins to feel. And hopefully this week, as you lived out what we learned, you were more aware of God's presence and work with you and in you. This week, we build on that idea and we learn from our text that God often works in our lives and unexpected ways. You've heard the old saying, God moves in mysterious ways. We've all heard that, right? Well, it is true. God works in unexpected ways. And our text reminds us of that fact. I mean, what could be less expected than this guy, Saul, right? We meet this guy, Saul, in this chapter. And Saul was there when they killed Stephen. Saul was the guy who held the jackets while they stoned Stephen, What a dubious position to be in. And then we're told in Acts chapter 8, in case we didn't understand, that Saul approved of the killing of Stephen. 
And then we're told that he went on to uh, persecute the church, to try to destroy the church and dragged off both men and women from their homes, persecuting them. And we know, we're familiar with the scriptures, that this man, Saul, who was trying to destroy the church, will become in the next chapter the Apostle Paul, who will build the church tremendously by the preaching of the gospel to the nations. Yeah, come on. From Saul, the Christian killer, to the Apostle Paul, the Christian maker. I mean, God works in unexpected ways. Who in their right mind chooses Saul? God does, of course. But we'll get to Saul next couple weeks when we get to chapter 9. What I want us to see in our text now is what's going on with the church. What's going on with the church in this moment in chapter 8? It's important for us. It's important for how we understand ourselves as God's people, as the church, and how we think we ought to live as the church. So in framing this, I want us to remember the Great Commission, the words of Jesus here. Jesus said to his disciples, and so to us, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, right? That's how the gospels end, is with Jesus telling his followers that they're to take the good news of him to the entire world, that people might repent of their sins, put their faith in Jesus and be saved and be new creations and have the promise of heaven. Go make disciples of all the nations is how the gospel ends. And then you remember how the book of Acts begins, Right? Jesus promises that his followers, the disciples and us, would receive power to live out that command. So we see the words of Jesus in Acts chapter 1. He says to them and to us, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere. In Jerusalem, throughout Judea, and in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus said that we as followers were to go and those immediate followers to the ends of the earth and make disciples and that it would start where they were in Jerusalem. That's where they were in Jerusalem. And it would kind of move out in concentric circles. He says here, Judea and Samaria and then to the rest of the world. Let's put a map up very quickly so we can sort of orient ourselves geographically and see what's happening here. You'll see I have my little pointer somewhere. See Jerusalem right there in the middle? That's Jerusalem. This is Israel, in case you didn't know. The top and the bottom are cut off a bit. Up here, that's the Sea of Galilee, and that's the Dead Sea. This black line is the Jordan River running from the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea. Right there in the middle, Jerusalem. And then this area north, this sort of taupe color, is Samaria. And just south of Jerusalem is Judea. So Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. You'll receive power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria. And then it was to move in concentric circles outward from there to the whole world. Jesus was pretty clear and explicit as to what they were to do. The problem is that for Acts chapter 2 through 7, they haven't left Jerusalem. They've stayed in Jerusalem and they've been preaching the gospel there and there's lots of converts and the church is growing, but they haven't been fully obedient to what Jesus asked them to do. No one's gone to Judea. No one's gone to Samaria. They're not even heading in the direction of the outermost parts of the earth. They have stayed in Jerusalem, contrary to what Jesus asked them to do. So, in his infinite wisdom, in his unfathomable love, Jesus is going to allow his church to experience immense adversity, a tremendous trial that will serve to move them into his will. Right? We see as Acts chapter 8 starts, then it says, On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Now, we would have hoped that that persecution would have ended with Stephen. That was horrific enough. Stephen was a great guy, faithful member of the church, full of the wisdom, full of spirit, full of the spirit. Uh, All those things we learned about last couple weeks. And Stephen is killed. We would have hoped that it would have stopped there. But evil seems emboldened by what happened with Stephen. And now there's a great persecution that breaks out against the church. And the church is forced to scatter. 
The apostles somehow are able to stay in Jerusalem, but everyone else had to scatter. Where do they go? Judea and Samaria. So the church that was gathered in Jerusalem for the first seven chapters is now beginning to scatter to Judea and Samaria. Now, there's an important sort of self-understanding that comes from that. This idea of the church scattered becomes part of the way that we are supposed to live as God's people. The church exists in general in two modes. The church gathered and the church scattered. And it was always part of God's plan that the church would gather and the church would scatter. Right now, we are the church gathered. That was not a hard one, but good job. Right now, we are the church gathered, and God always intended that his people would gather to, for, and around him. When he first called Israel out of Egypt, he told Moses to make a tabernacle, a building that would contain the Jewish worship structure, and he said, there I will meet with you and my people. So God is always wanting his people to gather to, for, and around him. So the way that we understand ourselves as a gathered church is we come together as often as we can, Sundays and other times, to gather to, for, and around Jesus. That's an important part of who we are. We're supposed to do that. But just as important in our self-understanding is the church scattered. Now, it doesn't always have to happen this way. It happened through tremendous adversity in the book of Acts. And that is a reality for some of our brothers and sisters worldwide. We don't necessarily understand that here in America, but about 150,000 Christians are martyred for their faith in Christ every single year. There are brothers and sisters in many places around the world who literally have to scatter for their safety and the safety of their families. But it's not supposed to only happen that way. We are supposed to, without being forced in such a way, we're supposed to live in a rhythm that is a church gathering and then the church scattering. Right? The church is not the building. The church is not what happens at 1045. We, Jesus' people, saved by his blood, are the church. And we're the church when we're gathered and we are the church when we are scattered. Now, when we gather, we gather with intentionality, right? We're like church starts at 1045, so I could be there whenever, you know, a few minutes after 11 or whatever, (laughs) apparently. We gather with intentionality. Church starts at a certain time, so I'm going to get the family, I'm going to get there, I'm going to put on my Sunday best, which at Reality Carpentry is not much. I'm going to get all caffeined up and I'm going to go there and I'm going to have to sit down, I'm going to have to stand up and I'm going to sing and I'm going to give and we're going to pray and we're going to hear the preaching of the word. We're intentional about being the church gathered. That's good. We need to be just intentional about being the church scattered. The idea is to scatter on mission. We gather here to be equipped to live life out there. When you walk through these doors, the church gathered, or wherever else the church gathers. When you walk out these doors, the church scattered. And we're supposed to have the same level of intentionality. We are the people of Jesus, and we are meant to take the good news about Jesus to the people around us. Right? He said, it'll start in Jerusalem, your place, and then it will begin to move outward. We are to live in that rhythm and with intentionality. And what does it say they did when they scattered? It says in verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Now, what I'm doing right now is one way of preaching the word, right? I've studied all week long. I have a prepared sermon. I stand up here and I preach. But this is not the only way to preach the word. We are meant to preach the word in all sorts of ways as we are the church scattered. We're meant to preach the word in the way that we treat people. We're meant to preach the word in the way that we live, sanctified lives unto the Lord. We're meant to preach the word in the way that we pray for people, our kindness, our generosity, the things that we say, the truth that we speak, the way that we communicate about Jesus. All of this is preaching the word, and that's what we're meant to do when we live out in the world. God's calling upon you is bigger than your own life and your own job and your own dramas. God also wants to use you in this place for his glory. And the scattering is where you are and then out there. Not everybody will go out there. I think more people are supposed to go out there than are going to the nations and the unreached. But first it starts right here in our own Jerusalem, so to speak, to be faithful witnesses for Jesus Christ as who we are, with what we know, amongst who we live, with the gifts and the resources that we have, preaching the word 
in all sorts of ways. And I want us to note the result of a faithful church scattered. What does it say there in verse 8? It says, and there was great joy in that city. Uh, I'm preaching from my NIV Bible right now. Uh, My usual Bible is my NASB that you guys all are familiar with, I think. My wife gave it to me in 1995, big old Bible with wide margins. That's like my, my number one sword. And the reason why I love the wide margins is I like to write in the margins of my Bible, predominantly prayers. Like a lot of times I'm reading the Bible and it prompts a prayer in me, like a prayer of repentance or a prayer of thanksgiving or a prayer of hope or a prayer of complaining or whatever it is. And so I write those as I'm studying scripture and other things in the margins of the Bible and I date them. And I'm so thankful that somehow I learned to do that when I got that Bible back in 1995 because I've got 23 years of prayers written in my Bible, prayers for my wife, prayers for my kids, prayers for you, this church, prayers for other things. This week, as I was studying this text from my New American Standard Bible, I came across one of those prayers. And I saw that on July 2nd, 2005, I prayed that God would do that in these coastlands, that there would be great joy in our cities because of the gospel going forward. And then there was a series of other dates. And then I added one. It was yesterday. I added one and prayed again, June 23rd, 2018. Please, God, bring great joy to the coastlands because of the gospel going forward. Now, here's what God does. He's sneaky, sneaky. Sometimes when we pray prayers like that, God will make us the answer to our own prayers. Can I get a witness? You got to be careful what you pray for, dude. So sometimes when we pray, Lord, we want there to be great joy because of who Jesus is and what he's done in our city and in our cities on the coastland, then God is going to turn around and say, okay, well then you're going to be faithful with being the church scattered, right? Because the joy didn't come out of thin air. The joy was the result of a faithful church scattered preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Please, God, may we be that church. Please, God, may we be that people. Please, God, we're great at gathering reality. May we also be great at scattering and gossiping the good news about Jesus Christ and our community. Amen? Now, it'd be awesome if we just heard the sermon, oh, we're supposed to be the church scattered and we all scatter, but sometimes God has to use different means to get us going. And it's evident in this text that God used adversity to get his people living in the way that they ought to and that much good came from it. God used adversity to get his people living in the way that they ought to and much good came from it. I want you to think now about your own life and let's think about our lives. Is there anything that you're currently facing that may be the loving, wise hand of God trying to get you to move in his direction, in the right direction. Think a little bit. Think hard. Maybe you have to pray, think. You know how to pray, think? Like I'm thinking and I'm praying, pray, think. So anything going on in your life, something that you're facing that may actually be the wise, loving hand of God to try to get you to go in the right direction. It can be complicated in spotting those things because sometimes what we see is that God is using evil and the folly of humanity to accomplish his purposes. That's all part of the corollary of the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Here's what the Bible teaches unequivocally without question that God is sovereign. He knows and is in control of all things, both actual and possible. God is sovereign. And this was, a, this was an outburst of evil that was going on here. And there was horrible human error there. But God will use even that to accomplish his purposes. We don't always comprehend that. We can't always lay hold of that. But we can always lay hold of the fact by faith that God is sovereign and in control and he's bigger than evil and the evil that happens to us and the mistakes and the folly of humanity. Come on, amen. He's bigger than those things. So it can be a little bit complicated because we're looking at a situation that's happening around us or to us and we see that this is evil and this is humanity gone wrong, but I'm calling us to have faith because of the Bible that we believe that God can bring good even from that. We actually believe that. That's why your favorite verse is what? 
Romans 8.28. Thank you, Brother Jad. That's why Romans 8.28 is your favorite verse. God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his promise. You love that verse. Some of you have it tattooed. (laughs) That is a wonderful verse because it is an explication of the sovereignty of God. That God is big enough and powerful enough and good enough to work everything that happens to me for my good and for his glory. And so I think it's important as God's people that we learn to look for and learn to see God's bigger purposes in the things that happen to us. And that's a brave endeavor because really bad stuff happens to us. Yesterday, uh, August 23rd, my daughter Daisy Love would have been 14 years old. She died five years ago. Yesterday was her birthday. My wife is out of the country, and, you know, that's an emotional, that's a hard day. But somehow I, I, I found the grace to begin to ask the Lord as I was moving through the day, Lord, what beauty have you brought from these ashes? God, what good have you brought from this horrible evil that took place? And with the help of the Spirit, I begin to identify some places of beauty that have happened in our lives through the greatest loss imaginable. Some restoration going on. Some good things that God has done even in the spite, in, in the face of such a horrific thing. Because, you know, we can either live as victims Or we can live as faith-filled people that believe in a sovereign and good God. And you know what? I don't want to be a victim. I don't want to live out of and be ruled by the bad things that happen to me. I want to have faith in a God who is good and able to redeem every situation and restore all things because he's that powerful and awesome. You've got a choice to make every single day when stuff happens to you. You've got to begin to see through the eyes of faith because scripture says so. The way that God could bring beauty from those ashes, the way that God might be working good through our greatest losses. Sometimes it takes a, a long time to see that kind of stuff. I think about Joseph. We talked about Joseph a bit last week, but you know, Joseph was betrayed and abandoned by those who were supposed to love and protect him, his brothers, right? Sold into slavery, abused, put in all sorts of horrible situations. And years and years and years and years later on in his life, after much suffering, he becomes second in command in Egypt. You know the story from Genesis or the movie, Prince of Egypt? Probably the latter. And there comes a famine in the land and his brothers come to Egypt looking for relief from the famine. They find that Joseph is there and of course they're shocked and embarrassed and appalled and they come grumbling at his feet or humbling themselves at his feet and they're worried that Joseph is going to act out toward them for the injustice they had done for the way that they abandoned and did not protect him and turned him over to evil forces. And they're groveling at his feet. And what does Joseph say in Genesis fifty twenty? He says, it's okay, brothers. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. How's that perspective? Now, it took him years, of course, to gain that perspective. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Sometimes it takes years to get that perspective. But what about if we worked on it a little earlier in our lives? What about if we rejected the victim mentality and we chose the road of faith and we begin to, when we encounter big things, just ask the Lord questions. God, what might you be doing? What unexpected good way might you be working in what I'm experiencing right now? That is the story of the church. That is what's happening in Acts chapter eight. God is using unexpected means to get his people living into his vision for them. God is working in unexpected ways so often that you think we would actually come to expect it, that it wouldn't be unexpected anymore. (laughs) I mean, think about when he sent Samuel the prophet to go to anoint a new king over Israel. And Samuel the prophet went to a father and said, bring me your sons because God has said, I'm going to choose one of your, or he's chosen one of your sons to be the new king over Israel. And he brought out all of his sons, but he didn't bother to bring who? David. 
because it's not, oh, nobody wants David. David's young and David's little and he's just out playing with sheep and we're not even going to present David. And Samuel the prophet goes through all the sons and though they all seemed like strapping, beautiful, capable young lads, Samuel says, that's not the one. And finally, the father brings out David and Samuel says, that's the one. Why would, who would, why would, who would choose David? Of course you would, God. He's a God who chose Israel. And he told Israel, I'm not choosing you because you're great in number or powerful or wise. Actually, you're not. You're small and you're weak and you're stiff-necked. Perfect, I'll choose you. Who does that? God does that. What about Gideon cowering, hiding in his little wine vat? And God comes and chooses and uses him. What about Rahab, the prostitute? And the spies go into the land. You know, they're supposed to go before and they go and they're in the prostitute's house at night. Gosh, I wonder what they're doing. And God uses this prostitute to help deliver the land of Israel, the promised land, into their hands. And she becomes a legend of the faith. James, who is very persnickety about such things, writes in his epistle that Abraham and Rahab are the great examples of faith. She ends up in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, and she even becomes part of the genealogy of the Messiah in Matthew chapter 1. Who would do that, chooses prostitute caught in the act? God would, of course you would. What about Zacchaeus? He's cruising through Jericho and there's all these people following Jesus and Jesus looks up at a tree and he sees Zacchaeus there and Jesus knows that he's a traitor to Israel, that he extorts money from people, that he's stolen from every single person in that community, that he's crooked and corrupt to the core and Jesus looks at him and says, Zacchaeus, I'd like to come to your house for dinner. Who does that? Of course God does that. Think about the woman at the well who had led a sexually immoral life, had a series of divorces and illicit relationships. Jesus goes to her and she's the first one out in Samaria that he reveals the gospel to. Think about the woman caught in adultery. All of religion said she she should be punished. She was caught in the act. She should be punished. And Jesus says, I don't condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. Who would do that? Of course God would do that. And the story goes on and on and on. By now, we ought to expect God to do the unexpected. But then, of course, it wouldn't be unexpected. Let's see two more examples of God moving in unexpected ways as we move further into the text. Let's read on in verse 9. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. And they followed him on Instagram because he had amazed them. (laughs) Oh, is that not in your translation? Oh, that's a BLT. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both women and men. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. Here's what I want us to see. I just want us to see that God continues to move in unexpected ways. Now, the gospel is going forth to this place in Samaria, and the one that is saved is like the least likely to be saved. You know how in your yearbook it was like least likely this and that? We should start to like... We should start some sort of Christian yearbook where we nominate people in our community least likely to get saved, like publish the thing and put it in the coastal view. This guy was like least likely to get saved. He's practicing sorcery, you know. Like that's a real thing. He's practicing sorcery, witchcraft, dark arts, black magic. And he's incredibly popular because of it. He's got all the Instagram followers. Everyone's amazed by him. He's got the whole community spellbound. And God goes in and moves by his spirit and saves that man, the least likely to get saved. Yesterday, I was at my house doing some chores and stuff like that. And my son was flying his drone around the neighborhood, just getting pictures of mountains, just looking at stuff. You know you know what a drone is? flying a drone around, looking at stuff. And um, not one of my neighbors, but someone that worked at one of my neighbor's property came running toward my property, screaming and yelling at the top of his lungs. Apparently very offended 
and threatened by the fact that my son was flying a drone and so seeing the neighborhood. And he came beelining, running, and I was way down in the garage and I, I heard him screaming and cursing and I came running out and faith, thankfully like got in between him and my son as this man was just seething and just spewing obscenities and yelling at this great injustice of my son flying his drone. Now, I'm like any other dad. You mess with my kid, I'll most likely kill you. And I'm already sensitive because it's Daisy's birthday. So I'm I'm not a violent man, but I could be. (laughs) My wife taught me years ago that what Christians are supposed to do from the book of Proverbs is believe that a gentle answer turns away wrath. So I tried to be gentle. I lowered my voice because his was very raised. I tried to use calm, respectful language because he wasn't. And man, this thing was inches from a full-on physical altercation. And thankfully, through my wife's advice and the word of God, the situation was somewhat diffused and he went off in the other direction. And I'll tell you what, I was boiling. And you know afterwards when you're replaying the whole thing in your mind? You know what I mean? Like, I should have said this and me that. <laughs> like, I thought, I thought it was going to be a physical fight, like right there in front of my house. So then I'm like replaying the fight that never happened in my mind. I was like... <laughs> <sighs> totally could have handled that guy. Like, all of that. I'm thinking all that. And I'm pacing up and down my street just like, come back. I dare you to come back. I dare you to come back. It's a true story. And then, like, a long time later, I prayed a little bit. And my prayers were mostly like, God, what should I do to this guy? Like, how should I? And God began to prompt me to pray blessings over him and for his salvation. And I thought about the text that I had been studying that morning to prepare for this sermon where another man through whom evil was working was targeted by the Holy Spirit to receive the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that he was loved by God and that his sins could be forgiven and that he could be delivered from the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the beloved son. And I said, that dude who I just almost got in a fight with is least likely to be saved. God, please save him. So in light of this, in light of Simon the sorcerer being saved in that community, who ought you to be praying for in our community? There's a homework assignment. Just pick out the worst dude you know and start praying for him because Jesus loves him. Jesus works in unexpected ways. Look at your story. Look at my story. If you knew me in high school, I'm the least likely anything. Anyway. So who should you be praying for? Now, let's see another unexpected vignette as we pick it up in verse 14. It says, When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on or upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Hold that thought of unexpected things happening for just a moment and let me just draw out a quick theological example there. We have been saying our whole time in the book of Acts that it seems as though sometimes the Holy Spirit can come upon a believer or a group of believers at a time later than their initial salvation. We have explained that the moment that somebody is saved, the Spirit takes up residence. I love you guys. First service was so slow on that. You guys are killing it. But the moment someone believes in Jesus Christ and puts their faith, the Holy Spirit is in them because that is a way through which we are regenerated. That is a way that we become sons and daughters of God is God's spirit in us. And the disciples already had God's spirit in them from John chapter 20 when we get to Acts chapter one. But Jesus says there's a second experience of the Holy Spirit where the Holy Spirit can come upon you. 
and they received the Spirit and came upon them. Here we see an example of the Holy Spirit coming upon a group of believers after they initially believed. It says that they already believed in Jesus, that they were new believers, that they had already been baptized, but John and Peter, through their questioning, found out that the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon or on them, same preposition in Greek. And so they lay their hands on them and the spirit comes upon them. And the reason for the spirit coming upon us is that we might live faithful, fruitful Christian lives of witness for Jesus. That's my theological aside. Now, what is unexpected here is the fact that John finds himself in Samaria laying hands on these Samaritans to receive the Holy Spirit. Here's why that's a big deal. Put that map back on the screen, please, brother. About the same way that the area of Samaria and Judea are divided on this map, the kingdom of Israel was divided hundreds of years before Jesus during the Old Testament, about the same lines. There was the northern kingdom, right, in the area of Samaria, and there was the southern kingdom of Judah in the area of Judea. They were divided. And about 700 years before Jesus, 721 to be exact, the Assyrians invaded the northern part of Israel, that area of Samaria, the northern kingdom. And they took captive a lot of the inhabitants there, the Jewish residents, and took them back to Assyria. Now the Jews did something there that they weren't supposed to do. They intermarried with the Assyrians and the Kuthites. They were supposed to keep the bloodline pure, but they didn't. They intermarried with the Assyrians and the Kuthites. And then later on, when the captivity was over, and they came back to the nation of Israel, and they were living in the north, the Jews in the south, the southern kingdom of Judah and the area of Judea, rejected them, saying, you guys are now half-breeds. You're intermarried. You weren't supposed to. We're no longer calling you Jewish. We're calling you Samaritans. And there was a deep divide that took place exacerbated by the fact that about 600 years before Jesus, 586 years before Jesus to be exact, the Babylonians invaded the southern kingdom. Now it was their turn. They got dragged off captive to Babylon, but they did not intermarry. They said, we're going to keep the bloodline pure. So when they came back to the nation of Israel and the captivity was over, they said, we kept it pure, you guys didn't. And there was this deep, deep sense of prejudice and divide between the two, the Samaritans and the Jews to the south. It was so deep that the Jewish rabbis used to say, let no man eat bread with the Samaritans for he who eats their bread is as one who eats swine's flesh. In fact, a popular prayer during the time from those in the South was, and Lord, do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. That's why when Jesus told the story to a Jewish audience of the good Samaritan was so profoundly unexpected because in their minds there was nothing No such thing as a good Samaritan. But there's God acting in unexpected ways again. And now look at this little twist. Here's John in Samaria laying hands on Samaritan believers to receive the Holy Spirit. Do you know what happened the last time John was in Samaria? No, of course you don't. Look at this. Luke chapter 9. When the days were approaching for Jesus' ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. Remember, they had a prejudice against that area as it was directed toward them. Look at this. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Now it's funny. But that's a deep, horrible, evil prejudice between people. To the degree that John says, Jesus, will heaven back us up on this? We want these guys dead. We'll call fire down on them. How unexpected that the same John now finds himself in Samaria, praying down the fire of the Holy Spirit on these same people that he once wanted dead. That is the power of the gospel to change a man. That is the power, the unexpected power of the gospel to change somebody. And the last verse says that they went and proclaimed Jesus throughout all of the Samaritan villages. Now, I want to suggest this in light of all that evidence. 
if we, if we are not experiencing unexpected and uncomfortable scenarios that lead to good in, through, and around us, I wonder if we're actually following Jesus. Say it again. If we aren't experiencing unexpected and uncomfortable scenarios that lead to good in, around, and through us, I wonder if we're really following Jesus or said in a different way. If everything always goes as expected and is as comfortable as desired, are we really allowing God to work in our lives? So in light of that very harsh question, I ask a more down-to-earth one. Is there any way currently in your life that it seems God may be challenging your expectations? I have to think hard, pray, think, spend some time journaling this week, reflecting. Is there any way through circumstances in your life that God might be challenging your expectations? Now, here's the thing about expectations for an affluent culture such as us. Expectations become entitlements. Right? In such a culture, we are entitled to. I feel entitled to a bigger paycheck. I feel entitled to more prestige. I feel entitled to health. I feel entitled to that promotion. I feel entitled to this comfort. I feel entitled to this house and the second house. Our expectations have become entitlements in a culture such as ours. And sometimes, because God loves us so much and God is so wise and he's so concerned for our well-being and his glory, he will challenge, he will confront our expectations, i.e. entitlements. And he will generally do through, so through adversity. And God does this because he loves us and he's concerned for our good and for his glory. And one of the ways that God confronts our expectations is through sanctification. Everybody say sanctification. Sanctification is the process of becoming more like Jesus the work of the Holy Spirit in us, the work of God's word in us. It is a process by which we are changed to be more like Jesus, sanctification. And as we're engaging in this process, as we move through life, the spirit working in us, God's word having its work in us, as we are sanctified, we forsake sin and embrace holiness. As that happens, we find ourselves living in greater consonance with the kingdom of Jesus and greater dissonance with the kingdoms of this world. And there's a rub that happens there. We find that Jesus' kingdom is upside down in comparison to or contrary to the kingdoms of this world. All of our previous kingdoms, all the kingdoms that we build for ourselves and subscribe to in this world are built on the axioms of power, influence, ascent, and gain. All the worldly kingdoms are built on the axioms of power, influence, ascent, upward mobility, and gain. But the kingdom of Jesus, we find from the scriptures, is one of humility, submission, service, and sacrifice. And there is a rub, a real rub that happens as the sanctification process goes on in us and we begin to look more like Jesus and live more into his kingdom. We find ourselves more and more in conflict with all the kingdoms that we have previously subscribed to. And the struggle is real. It was very real for Simon, the sorcerer here. Think about the kingdom ideals that he had previously been living out of. Right? They're just, as I said, power, influence, ascent, and gain. Look at these couple of verses that we already read. Simon, a practice sorcerer in the city, was amazed, and he amazed all the people. He, bo- they all boast- he boasted that he was someone great. All the people, both high and low, gave their attention, exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. He wasn't. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. That's the kingdom and the kingdom ideals that he was living into and out of. Now we're told in the verses that we already read that he believed in Jesus and was baptized. 
Now we're going to see new kingdom ideals begin to rub up against these old ones. He's been delivered from the domain of darkness, transferred to the kingdom of the beloved son, but there is still a process of sanctification that takes place whereby we are able to identify and reject and forsake those other kingdom ideals and live into the kingdom ideals of Jesus. Watch him play out in his life now as we pick it up in verse 18. When Simon saw that the Spirit was, giving on, was given excuse me, at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Right? There's where he's living out of. And said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I may lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered and said, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord and hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said will happen to me. So Simon the sorcerer unexpectedly believed in Jesus, was baptized, delivered from the domain of darkness, transferred to the kingdom of the beloved son, But he's confronted with these new kingdom ideals. The power and the principles that he previously lived by by are being challenged by a new power, by new principles. But he was still stuck in the old ways. Look, here's the way this world works. I'll give you money, you give me this ability. And then I could do this stuff and I'll be back in that old place of many Instagram followers. Peter responds in a way that helps us and think about our own lives when he says, you have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. You need to get his heart right. For I see that you're full of bitterness and captive to sin. That word bitterness is not what we think. We generally think that it's an issue here of unforgiveness or uh, still angry, hold on to something that happened to us. But the Greek word there actually means something that is greatly offensive before God. In other words, something that would like taste bitter in one's mouth, like you this was greatly offensive before God. What was the sin that was greatly offensive before God? He was captive to sin, Peter said. He's bitter and captive to sin. He was captive to the sin of self-glorification. There is only one king in the kingdom, and his name is Jesus. And to him alone belongs the glory. And so now that we have exited all the other kingdoms and we now live in and into and out of his kingdom, glory is no longer for ourselves our primary concern. That's to be forsaken. That's to be laid aside. That's to be repented of and to live for the glory of Jesus through humility, submission, service, and sacrifice. So Peter told him to repent of this wickedness, to reject the ways of those other kingdoms he's living out of, and to embrace the ways of the new kingdom. And it can be hard, because old kingdom ways are deeply ingrained in us. We were raised in them, we've been steeped in them, we've been infused in them, we continue to consume them through entertainment and other means. It can be hard for us even to identify them. We need to ask the Holy Spirit for help through the word to identify when we begin to live into and out of old false kingdom ways. Help us do that this week, Lord. I have found, as I'm trying to do this, that I found myself believing the lie that, well, I, I can't even live in this world unless I play according to their kingdom rules. How am I supposed to advance my business? How am I supposed to advance my agenda? How am I supposed to have influence? How am I supposed to get enough money? All these things come into my mind. of If I'm going to go these kingdom principles and look like Jesus in this way, I don't even think I can live in this world. They did kill Stephen. And they did kill the king, Jesus. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And the call is to look like Jesus, not like the kingdom of this world. And so God helps us by giving us stories like this that become a mirror for us. We can hold it up and we can say, ah, look like Simon there, the way I'm living. And he helps us by giving us his spirit in us and upon us, the work of sanctification and to become faithful witnesses. And so in closing as point of application, I would like to encourage us this week 
to be asking God how he's working, certainly unexpectedly, in, around, and through us. Because we believe, because the Bible says, he's always with us and always working in our lives. How is he confronting your expectations this week? What wrong axioms are we living in and out of that we need to repent of and begin to live in the kingdom way? How can we as a church who are in this together, how can we be asking God today to help us to be faithful as the scattered church, the scattered church that lives life on mission for the glory of Jesus, telling people about Jesus? Church, I just think that we and that all the churches in the coastlands could grow in our scattered faithfulness. I think we're good at gathering. May we also be really good at scattering so that men, women, and children would come to know the love of God and the forgiveness of sins through the person of Jesus Christ. And we already know that for that to happen, we need the Holy Spirit. We need to be filled with the Spirit. We need to be filled with the Spirit over and over and over again. So let's turn it into a prayer meeting. As the worship team comes up and they start to play, let's start to pray. Let's pray that we'd be filled with the Spirit of God to live a faithful life for Jesus Christ. The prayer team will be up here. We read in the Bible that when the new believers needed the Spirit to come upon them, that Peter and John laid hands on them and prayed for them and they received the Spirit. We'll do the same thing because it's the Bible. Pete and John aren't here, but it's cool. Come on up and they'll lay hands on you and pray, God, fill her with your Holy Spirit to be your faithful witness, to walk in power and in holiness and in purity. Let's start to ask God to do these things in our midst because we believe that we have a God who is present and active and is worth living for. Amen? Thank you, God. Please help us now, Holy Spirit, as we respond. Please keep us from checking out. Please keep us from shallow thinking. Please draw us into deep places where the truth of your word resonates and works in us. Please show us where we have victim mentalities or where we're living in and out of false axioms. Teach us to live in the truth of the kingdom. Teach us to live with a hope that comes from the king who is resurrected from the dead. Thank you, God, that in our lives, death does not have the final word that sickness and evil do not ultimately win. For Christ, you are risen and all is yours and you are coming again and you will resurrect all in glory on that day. Help us to live with faithful hope in light of that, Lord. As we take communion today, we thank you for the cross by which all these things are possible. We ask that the power of the cross will be real in our lives, that we would experience forgiveness and grace today and newness as well. Thank you for your great love for us. May your love and your presence be true and powerful in our church. And would we go out speaking of such things.